HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Subscribe today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon. It is Monday. It's 12.03. It's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We're going to talk today about fish and aquaculture. I've got a great guest for you. But first... It's time for Joys and Sorrows. Um, Of course, I don't have very many joys, although you might think this one is. Um, There's good news for America's cattle industry. China has lifted their ban of 2003, meaning a 13, almost 14-year-long ban, to allow imports of U.S. beef, which is really good news for cattlemen um, and especially good news for our beef packers. And you know what's interesting about this is that this was actually reported back in September, of 2016. That's when the actual ban was lifted. The ban was put in place because of bovine uh, spongiform encephalopathy, otherwise known as mad cow disease, of which in 2003 we had one or two cases in this country. Um, so the Chinese stopped taking our beef. And, um, and of course, it's also good news because the Chinese were big buyers from Brazil. Brazil is enmeshed in its own revolting uh, food scandal right now regarding their beef exports. But I digress. What was interesting to me about this is that the Meetingplace.com, which is one of my very favorite trade magazines to read, Meetingplace.com reported this lifting of the ban as if it had just happened in the wake of Donald Trump's meeting with the Chinese premier this past weekend. And the reality is, is no, that isn't what happened. It was lifted during the Obama administration in 2016. But the cattle industry, the the American Meat Institute, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, of course, they are very much in the Republican pocket. And of course, they want to make it sound as if to their constituency, i.e. cattlemen, ranchers and farmers, that it was uh, Trump who negotiated this for us. And in fact, it was not. So I'm just setting the record straight there. And I'm also just pointing out how news can be manipulated by these trade organizations in a way that is very, very political when it's really not supposed to be. Okay. So, um, and then we're going to talk one more thing about Republicans, then I'm going to say something about fish, and then we're going to go to a break, and then we'll have our our guest on, Scott Nichols. You're going to really enjoy Scott. He's a terrific uh, advocate for aquaculture. He's extremely knowledgeable, um, has a very long and um, impressive CV, which I will read to you, uh, and then I will (coughs) quietly go into a corner and weep. But in the meantime... We're going to talk a little bit more about Republicans because uh, you know how I feel about Kansas. It's kind of my favorite thing. Like I, I do kind of look it up almost every week. I look up, I Google Kansas news to see what the latest outrage is from that absolute boob and incompetent moron, Governor Sam Brownback, who seems to be headed, by the way, to a diplomatic post, if I'm not mistaken, as ambassador to China. <clears throat> but in the meantime, he remains 
uh, the governor of Kansas, those most unfortunate people. So, um, and that is his reward from the Gruppenführer for uh, being his bitch, basically. So anyway, um, so recently, uh, <laughs> recently, uh, Governor Brownback floated the idea of a flat tax. Remember the flat tax? Now, it was uh, Steve Forbes who was uh, literally ran for president on the uh, notion of the flat tax, and it didn't play then, and it ain't going to play now. Anyway, the idea of the flat tax is a way to rescue his state from the more than $1 billion, that's billion with a capital B, $1 billion shortfall in the state budget uh, going forward to June 2019. However, the flat tax uh, proposal was defeated on a 3 to 37 vote. Even Republicans refused to sign this thing. And you would have thought they would love the flat tax because, of course, it means that rich people pay less um, and commensurately uh you know, poor people and middle class people pay slightly more. So, yeah, very, very popular amongst the Republican Party. But anyway, it did get killed. And one thing that, about the bill that had lawmakers pretty excited uh, was that it, at least Democratic law, uh, lawmakers, had were excited by the fact that it eliminated the tax loophole for LLC, that's limited liability corporations, of which there appear to be some 330,000 in Kansas. That's 330,000 entities that are not required. They are tax exempt. Um, presumably the idea is to help stimulate business, but obviously it didn't because there is a $1 billion shortfall. Anyway, it was vetoed. Uh, I mean, the, the, the bill died. Uh, and the legislature had tried without success to raise taxes on income and especially on those LLCs of just a few weeks ago. Uh, and then that was be- vetoed when uh, Senator uh, Governor Brownback received that bill. And But the thing that breaks me up about this is like, you know, there are some people who just like you t- show them the same thing over and over and over again. And they just don't learn from it. So there's apparently a guy named Senator Rob Olson, who's a Republican from Olathe, I hope I said that right, who said that lawmakers, I'm quoting, lawmakers need to look at spending instead of asking for a tax increase. Quote, I think there's a place where we can cut. Let me remind you (laughs) that they have cut, they literally had to cut the school year short last year because they ran out of money to pay the teachers. They had to cut the uh, numbers of firemen, policemen, and take money back from hospitals and districts. I mean, it's just been a bloodbath in Kansas. And yet this genius, this wig of all wigs, Rob Olson, thinks they should find more places to cut. I'd really like to see him cut his own salary. That would be appropriate. Okay. And since lastly, since we're talking fish today, I thought I would include the news that insect, which is spelled Y-N-S-E, CT, a company that grows insects and processes them into feed for white-legged shrimp, which is, of course, the shrimp that we all buy, typically from Asia, has been given a green light in the EU to conduct trials on other fish as well as the white-legged shrimp and perhaps eventually even livestock. Right now, if the shrimp fishing, uh, shrimp farming industry were to adopt insect protein as a food source rather than using other fish, which is what they use, or grains, and we're going to talk about that, it would take an enormous amount of pressure off of the existing feedstock. My guest today will further deconstruct us that for us. And so, without further ado, we will take a commercial break and we will come right back with the estimable Scott Nichols and and he is going to tell us all about food, foods, or future food. Food's future, he'll tell us. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today to southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow, praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. Your 
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network, and thanks to our new sponsors, Southern Farm and Garden. Excited to welcome you to our roster of exemplary businesses that support the Heritage Radio Network. So today we're going to talk to Scott Nichols. Scott is the founder and principal of Foods Future, a limited liability corporation. Um, Through advising businesses that create aquaculture feeds, raise fish, and expand markets for farmed fish, Foods Future works to accelerate aquaculture's contribution to our future food supply. Uh, Prior to founding Foods Future, Scott was co-founder and managing director at Verlasso, Harmoniously Raised Fish, which is where I met him. Um, There he led Verlasso to develop new farming practices that resulted in Verlasso becoming the first ocean-raised salmon to receive a buy ranking from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch program, which recognizes environmentally responsible aquaculture practices. In recognition of his efforts to communicate the value of a sustainable seafood, he was named the 2015 Seafood Marketer of the Year by the by Intrafish. Scott is also a board member of the Aquaculture Stewardship Council. His education includes a PhD in biochemistry from UCLA and the Advanced Management Program in the Wharton School of Business. And like I said, I'm just going to go crawl into a corner and cry now. And you can just take over the program, Scott. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. <laughs> It's great to be with you again, Katie. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. So you have morphed from being Verlasso, a Verlasso person to a, a completely new venture. We haven't really talked since that started. It's called Foods Future. What what exactly are you doing? Well, very, very simply, the mission that I laid out for myself is that I would like to do whatever I can to accelerate the expansion of responsible aquaculture. So I think that there's a lot of reasons that aquaculture can offer us uh, a much more hopeful food future, perhaps, than the one that faces us right now. And so I'm working with a number of companies that touch aquaculture in a variety of different ways, and that can be all the way from people who are devising new ways to make feed ingredients. You mentioned insects just a minute ago, but there are many, many companies that are trying to find new ways to to displace marine ingredients in aquaculture. Um, But I'm also working uh, with farmers and retailers to help them tell their stories about aquaculture and what farmed fish can mean both environmentally um, and to our our own personal health. And and one of the things I think, um, particularly with fish farmers, this is a group of people who finds uh, a tweet to be a long-form communication. And so getting them to talk a little bit um, is something that I'm trying to do as well. Well, you know, you've been in aquaculture for, oh, it looks like probably about 20 or 25 years, and aquaculture is a I wouldn't say a new phenomenon, but it's pretty new. Um, I know shellfish aquaculture has been around for longer, but fish aquaculture probably, what, 35 years, 40 years max? In in large-scale fish farming like we see right now, yeah, that's true, probably since the 1980s. Yeah. But um, the culture of fish goes way back, um, and it started – in a number of different places in the world almost simultaneously. But the Polynesians, when they got to Hawaii, began culturing fish there. Chinese began culturing carp. Um, And there are uh, Italian oyster shells that are somewhere around four or 5,000 years old. So people wow. have been raising, raising seafood for a long time. But in, in a different, you're completely right, it's in a different way than we're doing it now. So um, I, to go just only back a few decades, what, what has changed substantially? And then we'll move forward into what's, what's really happening now. But just to give okay. people a sense of, of what, you know, how did it, when people first started farming fish, uh, say in the Northeast or on the West Coast, what, what were the sort of um, parameters of that time? type of farming? Well, the farming that we're most accustomed to um, in the U.S. is being done in um, uh, not so much in the U.S. We don't have a very big uh, industry of our own, but um, Norway began producing salmon in the late 70s, and and that made it a market foray into the U.S. in the the mid '80s or so, um, and uh, then also 
both east and west coast farms came on and began producing salmon as well. And there's a variety of, of, of other species in other countries that have been providing the food, uh, the seafood that we eat. And in the U.S., we import about 90% of the seafood that we eat. So um, we're, yeah. we're just not making a whole bunch of it here. That's right, uh, which seems a little crazy. Although I grew up right near a trout farm, believe it or not, in uh, Perryville, Rhode Island. It used to be okay. one of my favorite places. We used to bike down there to like just watch the fish. I mean, I don't know why that was so fascinating, but it was. Um, so the Aquaculture Stewardship Council has released new guidelines on feed that will minimize negative impacts of all aspects of production and sourcing. I'm quoting. What are those guidelines and, and what have been the problems with feed? Because I think, you know, I'm not sure people are too clear why aquaculture perhaps hasn't taken off in this country the way it may have done so in others. Um, but it doesn't that have to do a lot with the fact that they were using other marine life in order to do certainly salmon farming. Um, what's changing okay. about that? Um, let, me, let me start in the order that you, that you asked and, okay. and go to the ASC. The Aquaculture Stewardship Council has undertaken a dialogue with uh, many different stakeholders on trying to construct principles, if you will, for what constitutes the most responsible practice for sourcing feed. And last year, they released a, uh, their first draft for public commentary, and after taking those comments in, uh, released the second draft, I believe, right at the beginning of this year for public comment. But the, the aspiration is to be able to um, to have aquaculture adopt throughout its the entirety of its supply chain the most responsible practices that can be, and that includes the way that um, feed and feed ingredients are sourced for the fish. Right, and and so. Uh, one of the things I think you mentioned that um, the marine ingredients and then uh, thinking about what really has changed in aquaculture over the past little while. And the, one of the major things I think that comes to mind is that um, feed has changed dramatically. Yeah. And back in the 80s when you mentioned, and probably on your family's farm as well, fish oil and fish meal were principal ingredients for the fish. And there's fish eat three things, just like we do. They eat protein, they eat carbohydrates, and they eat fats. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so um, a very easy way to provide a complete diet to a fish is to feed another fish. That misses the mark a bit because um, what we want to do is, is we want to raise fish in a way that there's a net production of fish, um, and it's not possible to do that um, if you rely on marine ingredients. You always have a ceiling that you can't get past. And so um, over the past many years, there's been appearance of many new ingredients that are from terrestrial sources. Right. So that's one thing I think is a, a very big, uh, big change in aquaculture. Right, because wasn't it cost taking like five pounds of marine product uh, to create one pound of salmon, or maybe I exaggerate, what, three, three pounds of marine product to create one pound of salmon? It was. No, you're right. Oh, really? Very yeah. good. <laughs> Amazing. I pulled that one out of nowhere. <laughs> Sometimes I actually retain a fact. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> so I read that one of the things, I mean, you mentioned carbohydrates, um, and I'm assuming that what you refer to there are grains. And I, I read a very interesting report that came in preparing for our interview, Scott. I read a very interesting report, aside from what you sent me to read, um, uh, from UMass uh, in Amherst that uh, replacing marine-based feed with um, terrestrial feeds such as soy or grain-based feeds was having a very negative polluting out impact on surrounding water. And I wondered why that was. Can you explain that? 
No, I can't. Okay, we'll move right <laughs> on. Sorry. I haven't. I haven't seen that paper. I'll so send you the link because I, I actually I thought it was really good and really interesting. It was uh, created by students, but it was thoroughly well researched and it had a, an excellent bibliography. Um, okay, and really was a, a very very interesting. But I thought that was fascinating. First of all, who knew that they were um, feeding fish, soy, and grain? Okay, let's put a little more pressure on top of what we have to feed livestock, on top of the ethanol mandate. Let's also use soy and, and grain for. Okay, you know. You get the picture. Um, but let's. So, since I mentioned the insect company, what about the use of uh-huh. insects or larvae as uh, protein in fish feed? How widespread is that practice, and how much could it deliver as a presumably low cost, low footprint um, feed source? Well, right now, it's not very prevalent. But, it, you know, in all fairness, it's just at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And um, the company that you mentioned, Insect, has. Um, uh, beetles that uh-huh. they raise, and they use the larvae for the beetles, and then they separate the chitin or uh, the, the, the kind of exoskeleton right. of the insect from the protein, and they have a fairly high protein content uh-huh. um, that I think is really, really useful. Um, they have to process that to separate the protein from the other parts, and the cost comes with that. I don't know, of course, what their business is and what their costs are, but that does come at a cost. Yeah. The other thing that's being raised extensively is black flies. Yeah. Black flies are a little bit different because they contain about 40% protein. And most of the protein ingredients that are going into aquaculture have protein concentrations in the 60 to 65% level. So black flies as a source of protein as, as they are right now are a bit problematical because you run out of room. There's only 100% in the diet. You can't go above it. Uh-huh. So <laughs> right. uh, by lowering the protein concentration of what goes in, uh, something else has to come out, and I think with black flies, that problem is going to have to be solved somehow before they become a really prominent ingredient, uh, at least for the species that require um, higher protein concentrations. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually done a couple of programs on things like black soldier flies, um, black or f- yeah, soldier flies, which I guess are a slightly different species from the black fly. But I and crickets, of course, I've done shows about that. And I mean, I, I think that these are the future of food. I mean, not only for livestock, for fish, but also in some measure for people. But I certainly embrace the idea. Uh, I, I have a bit of an ick factor for it myself. It's not something I'm looking forward to eating. But um, I certainly see it as a tremendous improvement over some of the products that we're using now. Uh, certainly for poultry feed, you could substitute a lot of insect life, it seems to me, um, in place of, of some of the grains that we feed chickens now. I mean, after all, when they grow up outside, they, that's what they eat is insects. So, yeah. But so the, it seems to me that the egg factor ought to be kind of low here. I mean, not for eating them yourselves. Right. Um, but you for, know, I, but I don't as necessarily a, want to recross my dress right now and grab a cricket. But <laughs> when you think about feeding uh, farm animals, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's on land, you're right. This is what they eat anyway. And when you think of um, salmon in uh, a stream for the portion of their lives that they spend outside of the ocean in, in, in on land waters, they eat insects. And so That's right. it's got to be a perfectly uh, reasonable thing to feed them. And there are sources for the feed that I think are, are really quite good ones. So with uh, ethanol manufacturing, the ethanol comes from the starch in the maize grain, but what's left over is something that's relatively higher in protein. And it's the sort of thing that insects could live on perfectly. So there's a ready source of the diet for the insects there Uh that could be really useful. I think the biggest stumbling block to this, if I'm not mistaken, and and certainly correct me, is is basically making the regulations uh, that would govern the use of uh, the the growing of insects for feed, whether it's for terrestrial or or fish. Um, There seems to be like some stumbling blocks around trying to get uh, sort of some sort of uniform... uh, 
uniform uh, program for how you grow, how you raise, what kind of environment, what you feed insects in order to convert them into a feedstock. Is there, are there other reasons why it hasn't, that you're aware of, that it hasn't become more prevalent? Well, I think, it, first of all, there's a matter of scale and the, just simply the amount that's available. And, and that's not very much right now, and that'll yeah. change in time. But um, with, with respect to the regulations in the United States, we need to feed animals a defined and known diet. And what that means is then, um, if you think of some of the benefits that people tout for raising flies, it's the use of, say, grocery store uh, items that are expired, and it's perfectly fine for the insects to live on. But that's not a defined diet, so that doesn't fit into our regulatory scheme the way it is right, right now. Right. And, and that problem has been taken care of in a few other countries. I believe it's uh, taken care of in France. That they, they, they are able to um, raise them commercially. And South Africa, I think, is one of the first countries where um, insects were raised and fed to fish commercially. Mm. You know, I did a show about two years ago with a guy in South Africa whose name escapes me now, um, but listeners can go back into my archive and look for it. Um, but he was raising, he had a really interesting system, and this was, I mean, we're getting off of the fish topic. I'm sorry, I know I write an outline, but anyway. But he he was raising his insects literally on the blood from slaughterhouses. They Well... That would be right? a defined diet. So it was kind great, of a closed yeah. loop, and then they were feeding those insects back into the poultry uh, industry. I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. I was really that was like just a really remarkably smart way of of doing things. And they got they got past the regulations. I mean, they are doing it on a large scale. And he wrote a very interesting book. That guy, um, I think it was called The Fly or The Black Fly or something like that. Anyway. I'll try to put that up on my show page. If people want to pursue it, I will um, put the link up for you. Um, But let's move on because one of the things about um, fish farming, perhaps not necessarily in the United States, although you can certainly clarify this for us, but definitely in Asia and perhaps elsewhere is, uh, you know, one of the worst aspects of fish farming is the heavy use of antibiotics. Because just as, you know, livestock in a a a concentrated area feeding operation or in a a hen house or whatever uh, can pass... um, disease around very quickly. Uh, fish also, when they're confined, pass disease around very quickly. So what? how has the aquaculture uh, community addressed the issue of livestock use? I'm sorry, of ab- uh, antibiotic, antibiotic use. use. Excuse me, yeah. Mm. yeah. So I think performance varies depending on the farmer, just as performance varies with any farmer who's growing something on land. Mm-hmm. One thing that's different about fish than terrestrial animals is that antibiotics aren't growth promoters Uh in fish. So there's really no economic reason for a farmer to feed antibiotics to the fish prophylactically. And they're used really only to treat disease. However, um, disease pressure is different in different places, and the response of different growers in different regions of the world is is really all over the map. Um, so there's no res- no guidelines, no regulations no, per se. No, there are, no, there are there are guidelines, and there are national regulations. Uh-huh. So, um, in in particular, in the countries that like Norway, Chile, Faroe Islands, Scotland, and Canada, where salmon are extensively raised, they have very strict national regulations on how they're administered and um, what can be administered. But the disease prevalence is different in different countries. So, for instance, in Norway, the water gets to about four, this is all Celsius, the water gets to four degrees every year and most of the bacteria die Uh when they get to those low temperatures. In Chile, the temperatures get only to about 10 or so degrees. And so in that warm water, the bacteria don't die off every year. So it's pretty much, it's it's a little bit like... um, 
how we see ticks in our garden in New York or Pennsylvania versus how people see ticks in their garden in North Carolina. You know, in North Carolina, they're there 12 months a year, and for us, they're there five months a year because right. they die off. Right. Interesting. Um, but uh, the difference between Norway and Chile, for instance, is that in Norway, they use less than half a gram of antibiotics per ton of salmon produced. Whereas in Chile, over the past couple of years, it's been between 600 and 700 grams per ton. So when I say things are all over the map, they are all over the map. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, one thing that is happening that I think is a bit hopeful is the development of new vaccines. Vaccines for animal agriculture are really focused on the terrestrial animals, but there are some companies now in the world that are taking a real active and focused pursuit of developing vaccines for aquaculture, and this should do well for a number of the prevalent diseases, and by vaccinating, you can keep the, the incidence of disease down. And therefore, the use of antibiotics down. Do they yeah. just out of curiosity? Do they use the same? You know, because in in uh, certainly in in uh, animal agriculture, uh, we use they use a lot of the same antibiotics that are very common in human medicine. Is that also right. the case in fish in in aquaculture? The, the the World Health Organization has a couple of different levels that they use to refer to drugs, and one is critical for human health, mm-hmm. and the other is important for human health. Um, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council and Seafood Watch in particular, groups who um, assess fish and the way that they're produced, don't allow the use of antibiotics that are critical to human health on that World Health Organization list. I see. And and so in those cases they're not being they're not being used when those groups are certifying. But otherwise there are many of the drugs used in aquaculture are also part of what's used in uh, human medicine. Yeah. So therefore there's a lot of pressure to stop using them, hence the vaccines. Um, let us go on to a question that I had about where does aquaculture take place primarily? Is it mostly in pens, um, on, you know, on terrestrial uh, terrestrial pens or like, the, for example, the little trout farm that I used to visit as a child? Um, they were just like sort of these runs, these like concrete lined tanks, basically, um, with moving water. Is that how most fish are raised uh, or are they in open pens in the sea? Most of the aquaculture in the world is taking place in in China uh-huh. and in Asia in particular and, and Asia in general and China in particular. So of the worldwide production of uh, thin fish, 40 million or so tons are produced in Asia and 44 or 45 million tons are produced worldwide. Wow. Of all of that, the majority is being produced in fresh water. So perhaps um, 40 or so million tons are being produced in inland agriculture and maybe six or seven million tons are being produced in the oceans. So they, I'm not sure I understand, like they can, so the type of fish that we're raising, say tilapia is a freshwater fish. I know that's a very heavily farmed fish. Um, So we're talking tilapia, we're talking salmon. What what other, what are the other fin fishes that are? A lot of carp. A lot of carp. So that would be the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of of others uh, in the family of catfish. Mm -hmm. So pangaceous catfish. A uh, few others. There's a fair amount of that raised as well, and um, a, a lot of that is happening, uh, or most of that is happening in inland waterways as well. Mm-hmm. And how much are what are we in, in the United States? We primarily, as farmed fish products, we primarily eat tilapia, salmon, and shrimp. Is that right, or are there other species? And also, can tuna. 
Can't. Uh, but of the, of the farm species, yeah, those are the three that we eat. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because one of the they, things. They, yeah. Go ahead. They account for about seventy percent or so of of what we eat. That's what, that's what I thought, because I couldn't, I couldn't think of any other species that seem to lend themselves to aquaculture um, in quite that same way, at least out on that, you know, on that scale. Um, one of the things that I also read in this interesting report was that farm, uh, fish farming is a significant cause of pollution from nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh, this, and this, these are what are being, I guess, caused by feeding them grains and soy. And those are the same products uh, that cause eutrophication in bodies of water like the Chesapeake from runoff on farms. So what, what, are, what are aquaculture specialists doing to mitigate some of those problems? How are, they, how are they managing that? Are they changing up the feed directives? Are they, you know, just flushing that stuff out like, like industrial cattle and poultry and pork farmers do? Like, what are they doing? How does that well, work for them? I would say that it, it, all of... What you feed contains nitrogen and phosphorus. So if you're feeding fish meal, it also um, would be an issue for you and something that has to be contained. And so there's a couple of things, I think, that, that in aquaculture are trying to come together to contribute to diminishing whatever effects that are there. So I would say all... All agriculture has environmental effects. Of course. And the measure of a farmer's stewardship isn't necessarily having no effect, but managing to achieve the least amount of effects. And one way you can do that is by fallowing sites after you farm them. So in different jurisdictions around the world, fallowing can be required for six months up to a year after you harvest something from, after you harvest the food from, from the water. And uh, in, in also some jurisdictions, you have to measure with a variety of ways what the health is of the ocean floor below the farm before you start farming and after you farm. Uh-huh. And you're not allowed to go back in until you have recaptured the health of the ocean bottom that was present at the beginning of the prior cycle. So that's, I think, a really important thing about following. And then another thing is site selection. Um, just as with agriculture on land, um, selecting sites appropriately in the water really matters. And so you wouldn't want to put uh, a chicken farm or a hog farm uh, within 20 or 30 meters of a, a, a stream or a river mm-hmm. uh, because you don't have your best possible chance at managing well when you do that. Likewise, you have to pay attention to current depth, currents and the ocean depth where you're farming so that you can mitigate the effects of the farm. And another thing that's just beginning to emerge and I'm really hopeful about is using area management rather than farm management as sort of the unit that you look at, um, both with permitting and with effects on the environment. And, and it may be that you could look at a farm, and the farm looks great, uh-huh. but you've got enough farms in an area that the aggregated effect is greater than one that you believe that you can undertake. And so by looking at area management instead of farm management, I think that we will step our way into a much better um, management practices for our water. But, you know, let me also just plus one this a bit. with Something that a guy named Pete Bridson did. Pete did a number of studies for Seafood Watch, and he analyzed uh, the B.C. farms, uh, salmon farms for Seafood Watch. And one of the things that he found was that 30 meters from the farm, there is no measurable effect of nitrogen or phosphorus um, uh, pollution. Huh. Okay, so you don't have to get a long way from the farm 
before you um, have have really diminished. Uh, almost to negligible the effect of the farm. Let me ask you this, Scott, since we're talking about that. In general, what kind of measurements are we talking about? Like how big would an average salmon farm that was taking up space in the ocean, you know, what you're just describing, how big would that space be? How, how much... I don't know how to describe it. Is it acre? How do you yeah. talk about water feet? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, a, a typical farm um, where I, I used to farm, for instance, would be uh, a matrix of five pens by two pens. Uh-huh. And, and so each one of them is 30 meters on a side and 15 meters deep. And so the, when you add the, the walkways and everything between the pens, it's probably uh, maybe 165, 170 meters long and 70 or 80 meters wide. Huh. So not so huge. A, couple of, a few football fields. Yeah. Right, right. right. Interesting. Okay, let's talk a little bit about aquaponics because I was well, I was curious to know how much of uh, you know existing fish farming now exploits the use of aquaponics, which be the combination of of growing um, uh, fruits and vegetables hydroponically uh, by recycling the wastewater from the fish. Is that is that a trend you see expanding? Is that something that's like a big deal, or is that just like uh, a few niche people doing that? I think it's more the latter, Katie. The the economics of aquaponics, the analysis of it is pretty sparse. Uh But what we do have shows a pretty small industry. So there was a person there. No, he still is a person. There's a person (laughs) named Dave Love who is from Johns Hopkins. And last year, or excuse me, 2015, did a study of some 280 or so aquaponics businesses in the United States and um, uh, found that the total in production in all of them added together was 20 acres. Oh, no kidding. So it's a, it's a very small business yeah. so far. And um, it, it's interesting when you read what he wrote, he shows the diagram of, of producers with uh, their different amounts of revenues. And, you know, he feels compelled to have the chart line in there that says those making zero through $499 a year. So, Yeah, it's not big business, obviously. It's, it's not actually a bold you over kind of business yeah. yet. But, but could it be? Um, could that become a, a, a real, you know, like a more uh, viable revenue stream, a more, you know, a more robust model? Or is it just kind of like, uh, kind of a wannabe kind of thing, you know, like, oh, I wish this would work, so I'm going to pretend it does kind of thing. Right. I, I have, I don't really pretend to any kind of expertise here. Okay. I've just read a bit. Uh, what I would say is that in a lot of aquaponics facilities, they use uh, uh, supplemental lighting. And so half of them are using supplemental lighting. That means they're paying for light, whereas a farmer growing out in a field doesn't have to pay the sun to put light onto his or her fields. Right. And when you consider also fish farming indoors, you have to do a lot of things that the ocean already does for you. And the ocean keeps the water temperature at the correct the correct temperature for the fish that are growing there. But if you're growing fish somewhere like Chicago, Uh the temperature is going to be well below freezing in the winter. It's going to be ungodly hot in the summer. And you have to expend energy to keep the water at a temperature that's appropriate for the fish. So this is something that is an added cost for raising those fish that people who are raising them um, in the ocean don't encounter. Uh-huh. And so energetically, it starts to become a, a, a bit of, in my mind, a bit of a question. How sustainable is it sure. if you are, say, burning coal? 
to uh, generate the electricity that keeps your water at the correct temperature and circulates it and cleans it. Right. And then plus on top of that provides the light for right. your vegetables right. to grow. And I, presumably your fish need some light too. Um, I, I, unfortunately, we don't have too much more time, so I want to I jump on to the next question. But that, that was really interesting. Thank you, Scott. I was really curious about that because, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people sort of tout that as, uh, you know, as a really great model. And I, it's, clearly it has a long way to go before it becomes something. So what, in your opinion, what are the best uh, fish species for aquaculture from an environmental standpoint? Is it just salmon? Why aren't they doing it with other fish? I'm wondering. Well, hands down, from an environmental perspective, the best thing is, is uh, shellfish. Right. Okay. Because they're, they're not fed. Right. And, and they also sequester carbon when they make their shells. And so when you have an oyster or a mussel, it's pulling CO2 out of the water, making its shell, and it's filtering the water, yeah. eating the algae, and turning it into something that really looks like a very good dinner tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so hands down, that's what I think is the best. But I think we're at an interesting stage in aquaculture right now because – I think we're just opening the door on what aquaculture can be, and we have the ability, I think, uh, to learn from and look at the mistakes that have been made in terrestrial animal agriculture, mm -hmm. and at least we, we don't have to make those. We can see them, we can see that they were made, and we can avoid them and do, take, take steps not to... Um, to do things that didn't work before. Now, we'll probably go ahead and make our own mistakes, but at least as long as they're brand new mistakes um, <laughs> and we're not repeating them, that's a good, I think, a good thing. I do too, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, since we need to wrap this up, so what, what, what do you think, uh, how does American aquaculture stack up and what, how can people learn more about this? You know, let's, let's, sort of put this together into a package. Are, should we be looking more for American... You said we don't grow a lot of fish aquaculturally. Um, so who who are the best places to buy it from? And what are the arguments for buying farmed fish versus uh, wild-caught fish? Well, wild-caught... Wild-caught fish are an interesting thing, and me, one of the things I think of when people talk about the preference for wild-caught fish, I think, well, what are all the other things in your diet that weren't farmed? <laughs> right. Good point. And so um, I know I go out in my yard, and, or I have a, a field in the back of my house, and I, I harvest mustard plants in the spring. And so I have mustard greens, and then uh, I have a bunch of wild onions that grow in my yard in the spring, and so I, I take those tops. That's about it for me. Um, <laughs> everything I eat comes from a farm, and I think really agriculture is one of the things that allowed the development of our societies as they exist. It allowed for cities to be built and all other kinds of things um, that, that we take for granted now. But um, the, the advantage of farm fish, I think, is that we can have a plentiful, if we choose, we can have a plentiful um, and year-round supply of fish. And fish is clearly, from a public health point of view, it's the thing that we really should most be eating. Yeah. And when we think of the, uh, the wild-caught fish, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations every other year publishes something called the State of World's Fisheries and Aquaculture. And starting back in uh, 2008, Eight, they saw that about 80% of the world's fisheries were harvested at or above their sustainable limits. And that's gone up every year to the point where it's a little bit over 90% of the world's fisheries are harvested at or above their sustainable limits in the 2016 FAO report. So we can't continue to take more. In fact, you can probably make a good argument that says we should take less. Yeah. But what we also have a countervailing kind of thing is that we should be eating more fish. And the way that we can do that is by farming fish. 
And the way that we should farm fish is that we should do it with the most responsible of practices. And I think because we're at the beginning of this, we have the ability to do that. But, I, Katie, I think we're, we're facing an impending crisis, and sometimes it's best to understate things, to emphasize their, their severity, but uh, I can't do that. This is coming at us like a freight train, because 38% of the world's land and 70% of the world's water is used in our current agricultural production, That's and right. depending on who you want to believe, the FAO says we need uh, to increase that by 70% by the mid-240s. Jason Clay, World Wildlife Fund, says it needs to be doubled, but it doesn't really matter what the numbers. We can't double 38 or 70 percent. Right. And the thing that we can do, though, is we can farm fish. And so um, do we have a couple more seconds so I can talk about it an example? Uh, we have like literally two minutes. And then, okay. we really, and then and I want you to have right. a chance to promote your your organization and tell people where they can okay. learn more. So but go well, ahead. Rock on. All right. So Duplin County, North Carolina, produces more hogs than any other county in the United States. Yes. It's about 2 million of them, and they produce 280 million pounds of meat for the table. And so if you think of a prototypical fish farm, the 15 meters deep that I said, and you consider that you have fish in there at 7 kilos per, per ton of water, okay? Uh-huh. To put that in context, the national regulation in Norway is 25. So we're actually a a bit less than a third of that. And then you say, well, what kind of ocean surface would be required to produce the same amount of meat as is being produced by the 862 square miles of Duplin County, and it's less than a square mile? Wow. The productive capacity of aquaculture is enormous. It can be game-changing for our diets, and for our stewardship of resources, and I really do think it gives us a promising look for the future. I think that's great. That's a beautiful way to end the show. Uh, your organization is called Foods Future, correct? Yeah. And people future can go on your and, website. And it's foodsfuture.org. Okay, great. And um, out there, I, I, I write a bit about aquaculture and, and other issues in the future of food, and I post all my articles there, and for articles that are published elsewhere, I have a link to them. Mm-hmm. So um, now, for myself, I know my enthusiasm for talking about fish ends somewhere around 18 or 19 hours a day, but if, <laughs> if you have an enthusiasm for going and looking about fish, I have a bunch of things out there that people can read. And I read them, and it was a very interesting and informative reading. So, Scott, thanks an awful lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks to our new sponsors, Southern Farm and Garden. And uh, thanks so much to my engineer, Vitor, who joined me today. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot for listening. Um, and remember, support Heritage Radio Network. Press the Donate button. Give us some money. Thank you. Bye-bye. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.